Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. In spite of Donald Trump clinging on to the desk in the Oval Office, it now seems inevitable that he has lost the election and President Biden will be inaugurated in January. What does that mean for President Biden's foreign policy and particularly his policies in the Middle East region? Donald Trump surprised a lot of people when his first overseas visit as president was a trip to Saudi Arabia, not a country that you normally associate with Trump's style of politics. And who can forget the image of Steve Bannon looking so uncomfortable in a room full of uh, Saudi tribesmen? But the American relationship with the Middle East region has been at the heart of a lot of what's happened during Trump's time in office, and also at the heart of a lot of what his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, has been involved with. So to help us understand that, and to look ahead to see what Joe Biden is going to do in that region, I'm delighted to have Michael Stevens with us today. Michael is a senior policy fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and was previously a researcher at RUSI, the think tank in Whitehall. So, Michael, welcome to The Bunker. Thanks very much, Arthur. Great to be here. What are your thoughts, just as a, as a way to sort of kick us off, about the impact of Trump's bizarre response to these election results, but particularly in the Middle East region? What do you think people are thinking as they look at what's happening in the US? Well, that's a great question. I have no idea what people are thinking because we're in such a strange, unprecedented moment where you have a president who is, to all intents and purposes, not admitting that he's lost the election, whilst his officials are behaving as if they're in a real hurry. And what seems to be happening is that the process of policymaking under the Trump administration, which was always slightly unorthodox anyway, but it had some results and things that it can put down as policy wins and many others that weren't. But it seems that it's now just gone into hyperdrive. Uh, You have Secretary of State Mike Pompeo going on a tour of the region. He goes to Turkey. He doesn't speak to anyone from the Turkish government. Uh, He's turned up in Israel uh, in the last 24 hours and is uh, sipping wine from uh, settlements in the West Bank ostensibly, I think, burgeoning his own credentials for a 2024 run. And it's very unclear to me where this is US policy or whether this is Mike Pompeo policy, whether Donald Trump is instructing him to do these things, whether Donald Trump even cares, because he's too busy tweeting about the fact that he won the election. So we're in a very odd moment. It's, it's, it's difficult to see what the Trump administration is trying to achieve in the next eight weeks. But we can clearly see that they're rushing a whole raft of sanctions through against Iran, uh, making commitments to the state of Israel that I think are designed to stop the Biden administration or the incoming Biden administration from rolling some of these policies back. So in effect, locking the Biden administration into four years of basically Trump policies that to unwind would be very difficult to do domestically, but also very unpopular politically. But I've been wrong before when it comes to, to trying to predict what Trump is up to and whether there is any method to the madness. Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. And if we were just going to pick up on on the sort of the Israel point there, I mean, one of the few things that I think even someone opposed to Trump would be able to sort of chalk up as a genuine foreign policy success appears to be the, the peace deal between the UAE and Israel, and then possibly one or two other countries in the Middle East, although the status of some of those other ones is, is, is still unclear. So would you be able to just sort of briefly describe 
what those peace deals involve and whether or not, you know, in your assessment, they are significant? I think they are significant. I think any peace deal signed by Israel with an Arab state is significant. The question is whether the states that the peace deals are signed with are the major players in terms of regional politics. There's no doubt in my mind that the UAE is probably the most effective single Arab state in the region in terms of its diplomacy and its diplomatic outreach, uh, not only to Western countries, but also to the Far East. Its ability to diversify its economy in slightly different ways from its neighbors. I think that, you know, whilst the UAE, yes, relies on oil exports for its economy, Dubai is a very, very unique feature in the region. And I think that is down to um, the creativeness of the UAE's rulers. They have certainly put on the table a new conversation from which I think it's very difficult to walk back. You know, once you have recognized the state of Israel, signed a peace deal with it, you can't really undo that. And I'll tell you why that's the case. It's because Israel has signed a peace deal with an Arab state that didn't involve a swap of land, a cessation of a war, or any type of commitment to the Palestinian cause. Now, it said on its side that it will stop settlement expansions or, or annexations. But actually, Benjamin Netanyahu has uh, played a bit of a double game there and has been saying to his own constituencies that actually I, I'm going to keep building settlements and annexation is only off the table for now. So basically, Israel has got quite a lot for giving up not very much at all. And I think if you look at the context of other peace negotiations that Israel has entered into that have failed, for example, with Syria, or the failing of the Arab peace initiative that was mainly led by the Saudis in 2002, that required Israel to give up something in order to get something back. And in this case, they've given up nothing, and they've been recognized. The other thing I think is important is uh, a cultural element. Um, the UAE has presented itself, along with Bahrain, which has also signed this agreement, um, as a land of religious tolerance and openness. Bahrain has historically had a Jewish community uh, and is very proud of that. But most other countries in the Arabian Gulf um, for the last 100 years or so have not had Jewish communities. The UAE is very strongly promoting Jewish identity as part of its cultural mix and saying that this is very much part of what it is to be in the Emirates. I think that is a very positive move. Now, yes, you could call it cynical and that it's linked very heavily to their recognition of Israel. But, you know, I think any port in a storm here, at the end of the day, I think it's very, very good that you have Arab states in the Gulf region recognizing that Judaism is a religion that should be incorporated as part of their cultural identity and should not be rejected. I guess then, if you were looking at that particular deal, from if you're the incoming Biden administration, it sounds like this particular deal is one that you're fairly happy about that you you don't this isn't some sort of problem that Trump has left for you to try to unwind this is something that you're quite happy to run with absolutely uh, and you know Biden always talks about how he's the biggest friend of Israel that there is in the Senate um, I don't know how you define that or how Biden defined that previously but look this is a lot of hard work and a lot of running uh, that was undertaken with the encouragement of the Trump administration. Um, that frankly puts into place a regional architecture that looks good for the United States, regardless of whether you are a Democrat or a Republican. Within the context of the US political discussion, this is absolutely positive for Biden. I don't see any reason why he would want to walk back 
any of the agreements or any of the frameworks around the agreements that were signed between Bahrain, UAE and, and Israel, and why he wouldn't use that as a template to actually expand commitments to the state of Israel by uh, Arab countries. So all in all, you know, this is something I think the Trump administration can rightly ticked off and say, yes, this was an achievement. And was this something that a democratic administration would have done? I mean, that's a what if question. But ultimately, because Trump's administration has been so unorthodox, ultimately, they have got some policy results, which maybe couldn't have happened in other circumstances. So they have taken advantage of, you know, the fact that it was an election year to get some quick, easy foreign policy wins, no doubt in my mind that Trump was thinking 100% domestically when he encouraged this to happen. But, you know, Jared Kushner and Mike Pompeo were seeing the bigger picture here, and I think have done a, a very, very good job to bring this together. I think the question now is, with the Biden administration coming in, knowing that they will be a lot harder on things like settlement expansion, that they will not tolerate, for example, some sort of, you know, hawkish policy that tries to force the Americans into a position on Iran that they don't want to go down, whether this creates a, a layer of tension which then stops further regional normalization from taking place. My guess is that things might slow down a little bit from here on in. And you, you, your mention of Iran there was kind of where I wanted to go next, because I think if we look at the beginning of this change in the relationship with the US and the Gulf, a lot comes down to Iran, as, as you're very well aware, you know, Trump pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. And in so doing, he moved himself much closer to the position of the UAE and Saudi in being very, very confrontational with Iran. Now, uh, you've got Joe Biden coming in. Do you think he will re-enter uh, Obama's nuclear deal with Iran? And, and how will that then impact the wider relationships in that region? I think they would certainly like to. There's no doubt in my mind that, you know, half the officials around Biden that are going to be taking office are the officials that were there in the Obama administration. They think about the nuclear deal in exactly the same way as they thought about the nuclear deal four years ago, five years ago now when it was signed. So, of course, there is a desire and, a, and, and you know, a, a way of thinking around Biden, which would encourage reigniting, if you like, the embers of the JCPOA. Now, there's a couple of things that have to fall into place for that to happen. And I would caveat that just by saying that four years have passed. You know, these Biden officials do understand that there were elements of the deal, not so much on the technical side with sunset clauses or enrichment levels, but more about the fact that it just completely ignored Iran's regional activities. And Iran under the cloak of JCPOA negotiations, effectively strengthened its hold in Lebanon, in Syria, and did a lot to help disruptions in, in domestic politics in Iraq, uh, not to mention Yemen. These all concern the Gulf states, who I think, even till today, view the JCPOA as a blank check for bad behavior from the Iranians. If some of these questions are not dealt with first, I don't think there's any chance that we would get regional uh, backing for a deal. And I don't think that it's likely, um, depending on what the outcome of the uh, the Georgia um, Senate rerun is and whether the, you know, the Senate becomes Republican or Democrat, but let's just say it's, it's Republican, then the, there's no way that you would get support um, in the Senate for re-engaging on the JCPOA if 
Israel, Saudi Arabia and the UAE were, were not happy with the conditions. I started out by referring to Trump's visit to Saudi Arabia, which, of course, lots of raised eyebrows. You know, Donald Trump is somebody who's said lots of rude things about Arabs in general and about the Saudis specifically in the past. And yet he he famously made this big visit to Saudi Arabia. No one will forget the images of Steve Bannon looking incredibly uncomfortable in a sort of room full of uh, Arab tribesmen dancing with swords. But of course, at the heart of that relationship in Saudi Arabia between, between that country and the US has been the personal relationship between Mohammed bin Salman, the young crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who has assumed enormous power, and Jared Kushner, uh, Trump's son-in-law. Could you say a little bit about that relationship and how it has defined the relationship between the two countries? Yeah, and I, th- I think you're right to point to um, Kushner and MBS's relationship as a very, very important, if you like, arbiter of, of US-Saudi, uh, broader US-Saudi engagement, in some ways counterflow to the wider perception, I think, amongst you know US elites that Saudi Arabia is no longer the ally that it once was. From a utilitarian perspective, it's certainly not as useful as it once was because the US doesn't really need a huge amount of Saudi oil. You know, if you if you go back to the Bush two administration, uh, where you saw similar relationships, you know, I think it was it was very clear back then that uh, you know Prince Bandar bin Sultan could turn up at George W. Bush's ranch in Texas or turn up at uh, Camp David on a weekend and have exclusive, almost you know, one on one access with the president. Yeah. At that time, the Saudis were providing a huge amount of America's domestic supply of oil, right? So there was a dynamic there which existed. That dynamic today, for reasons that we know well, which is that the US is becoming more energy self-sufficient, is not there. So why is it that Jared Kushner and MBS get on so well? Well, I think MBS and Jared Kushner see the region in very similar ways. They view an engagement with Israel as a positive thing. They view the kind of social norms that MBS is pushing, you know, opening cinemas, allowing women to drive all of these things, um, clamping down on political Islam as absolutely a core interest that they both share for regional politics. And it seems to be from all reports that they actually had a, a friendly interaction, that they got on well as two human beings. Uh, make of that what you will. Two young men thrust into power um, because of uh, father figures that uh, really, well, they, they, they got uh, lucky. So the thing is this, that relationship shielded Saudi Arabia for some pretty nasty things. You know, I, you know, Trump vetoed twice policies that or, or bills that came through the House and the Senate uh, wanting to stop arms sales to the Saudis because of Yemen and, of course, criticizing and directly naming Mohammed bin Salman for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. There was a lot of top cover for MBS, and Saudi Arabia squeaked through because of Jared Kushner's influence on the president, um, which brought these presidential vetoes down. Now, it, it, I, I think it probably isn't lost on you that there were campaign slogans used by the Democrats that quoted Donald Trump as saying, I saved his ass, right, which was the quote that Trump um, used on uh, on MBS in terms of his political fortunes. And that was used by the Democrats as a campaign slogan because they knew that it played so well with the American electorate. And also, let's be honest, most American politicians really have 
from the left to the right these days. I mean, this is there are only two countries in the region which have literally managed to uniformly be disliked. One is Turkey, and one is Saudi Arabia. And of course, Turkey and Saudi Arabia dislike each other. So yeah. both of them, from the left to the right, are, are universally disliked for either human rights concerns or energy concerns, or whatever. There's a, a myriad of these issues. The yeah. question is, without tr- without Trump and Kushner, what happens next? Are the Saudis in the naughty cage? Probably they are, but at the end of the day, Biden will still have to engage with them because the Saudis are the single most important country in the Arab world, and they will remain so. And if MBS doesn't get this right in terms of his economic reforms uh, and in terms of social reforms, then that could be very, very dangerous for the rest of the region. Michael, we've done this kind of lightning tour around the Middle East region and and how how it might be affected by the change in presidency. Just in sort of concluding, what's your feeling of kind of, maybe this is an unfair question, but it's not going to stop me. What what do you think are going to be the big issues in the Middle East in 2021 that people should be watching out for? Well, I think I think Iran is is got to be central here. How the Biden administration re-engages with Iran will set the tone for the next four years. And whether that means that the US is just going to have to manage bad relations with allies and partners, or whether it can start to build consensus slowly, but surely, around some kind of regional compact that makes the region a little bit more secure. From there, all else flows. And and I'll tell you why I think that's important. Because if you look at uh, what Biden and Biden officials have been saying, it's very clear that they're going to have to fit in all this Middle East activity at a time in which they are reprioritizing the European security sphere to do with Russia and their traditional NATO posture and swinging towards containment of China. How do you then get enough hours in a day where as, a, as an administration, you can have a very serious and sustained policy in the Middle East while at the same time you're sitting there and saying, well, you know what, we've actually kind of got bigger issues elsewhere that we need to focus on. Inevitably, the Middle East always draws the US back in, whether it likes it or not. But the point is, they need to be able to dedicate the resources and they need to do it multilaterally. Again, I bring up the Europeans. I think that's very important. There does actually need to be some buy-in from Russia and China here. The P5 powers all need to come to some consensus about what sort of Iran you know, they want to see in terms of its nuclear le- uh, enrichment levels, in terms of its activities in the region and its diplomatic links, whether it can be slowly engaged with economically or not, and then how we ameliorate some of the anger that would, would come from some of these states. The second issue is, uh, I'm afraid to say, I don't think that uh, uh, ISIS and al-Qaeda have gone away. Uh, everybody seems to forget that Syria is still going as a war. Al-Qaeda have a deep foothold in northwestern Syria. That means that we've got to engage the Turks on a, on a counterterrorism level, even if we don't like them. And then the eastern Mediterranean is really bubbling. I mean, there's, there's a lot of competition now between Turkey and Egypt. Israel has got caught in the middle there. And then that has spread into Libya. And Libya, again, is one of these sort of hot houses of instability that just seems to keep going and going. And I don't even know how many militias are operating in Libya anymore and how many factions and how many external players now. I think there's something like 15 major countries involved in Libya. And that would really be beneficial for everybody if we could bring that to a close. What I would also like to see, this is just a personal thing, but I think we really need to get moving on this, is is climate change policy in the region. And there's a couple of reasons why I think this is important and why I think the Biden administration putting climate change at the front and center of its mission would really help. 
there are a lot of people in the Middle East who live very, very close to the sea in terms of being less than one or two meters above sea level, right? For example, in the Nile Delta, you have, I think, 7 million people who could be underwater within 10 years. Wow. That is replicated in many areas across the region where you have critical national infrastructure, oil facilities in the Gulf, for example. The temperatures in Israel, for example, are now averaging over 37 degrees C in the summertime. The Israelis did some really interesting calculations about tourism. And what they worked out was when the temperature goes above 37 degrees, tourists begin to say, oh, no, that's a bit that's a bit hot. I, I want to go somebody else. I want a warm summer, but I don't want a boiling hot summer. So they've already seen some of the potential economic backlashes here. The summers are getting longer and drier, and they're getting less rain in the rainy seasons, which is causing population movements in poorer countries. If you link this to the problem of immigration or migration into Europe, you can quite clearly see the linkages and where the problems are. That has led to a rise of far-right militancy in Europe, as we all know, and there's been associated security issues, as we've seen. The French have just been dealing with those. So my view is, okay, whilst there's a lot of greenwashing and nice talk from countries in the region, they're actually not getting going fast enough. And I think they really need to, because actually, to quote the, you know, the phrase, the train is kind of leaving the station, and there's another aspect to this, which is that the economies in the Gulf have been smashed by the coronavirus. Continuously low oil prices are making it very difficult for them to get their economies going. They need to get on with diversifying. Again, you know, Arthur, you and I have been dealing with this for years. They talk and talk and talk about diversifying. Well, now is the time to start diversifying. No more talk. Because if you don't, then you're going to be left behind as the world starts to re, you know, reclaim its sort of normal speed from the coronavirus, but in a different direction. So I would really like to see that 2021 being the year in which we really start to engage in that conversation. Well, Michael, that seems like a fantastic place to stop. There's so many avenues that we could go down, enough for a whole podcast series. So I just want to thank you so much for joining us in the bunker. It's been a fascinating discussion, lots to think about. And I hope we can have you back maybe some point in 2021 and we can see if any of those predictions came out. Thanks again. Thanks so much, Arthur. It was a pleasure. Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Friday with Start Your Week on Mondays and the main panel show on Tuesdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Thanks for listening and see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jana Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.